Welcome back to the Joshua Shaw audio experience. Firstly, thank you for giving me a bit of your attention. I'm honored you trusted me with it, and I promise to return the favor by giving you a ton of edutainment value back. In my latest podcast episode, I break down the FTC's newest supplement industry advertising guidance with the help of Ivan Wasserman, a managing partner at one of the nation's leading regulatory and intellectual property law firms. But before we get started, I would love if you took 53 seconds out of your day to leave a rating review on whichever podcasting platform you're currently listening to. This helps me out immensely in terms of extending the reach of my podcast, but more importantly, allows me to make improvements based on your feedback. Thank you again. Now enjoy my newest podcast episode. Imagine you create a piece of content that gets millions of views. How long would it take you to make a follow-up? A few hours later, the same day, or maybe a few days later at the most, right? What about 25 years? I guess you could say the Federal Trade Commission, aka the FTC, wouldn't cut it in today's creator economy. That's because it took the regulatory agency 25 years to update its previous 1998 guidance document, Dietary Supplements, and Advertising Guide for the Industry. You might be thinking that a lot has probably changed in the supplement industry over the last 25 years, and you'd be right. During that time, the supplement industry has gone from a fledgling enterprise still seeking legitimacy, regulatory structure, and recognition to a mainstream behemoth with sales north of $60 billion in the U.S. market alone. Since the FTC waited an absurdly long time to update its supplement industry advertising guidance, you might also be thinking that the regulatory agency must simply be ignorant to the breadth and depth of change that happened within the supplement industry. Well, that's silly though. The FTC isn't blind. Plus, What happened in the supplement industry isn't particularly unique. Every sector of the economy is drastically different than it was in 1998. So what took them so long? Well, Section 5A of the FTC Act provides that unfair or deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce are declared unlawful. So in the eyes of the FTC, the legal fundamentals around consumer protection remain mostly unchanged. That doesn't mean all that change within the supplement industry didn't converge with the more than 200 cases filed by the FTC challenging false or misleading advertising claims since 1998, causing layers of nuanced confusion for stakeholders. So before we talk about what's different in the revised FTC document, let's quickly mention what's the same. If you've routinely consulted FTC's 1998 brochure, you'll notice that the basic content of the guide is largely unchanged. Like its predecessor, it sets out the regulatory framework for the FTC's authority over ads for health-related products, describes how the FTC and FDA coordinate their enforcement activities, and explains the FTC's process for identifying the express and implied claims communicated by an ad and assessing whether there is adequate scientific support for those claims. Okay, then what's different in the revised FTC document titled Health Products Compliance Guidance? Well, if you didn't pick up from the title change, the guidance now applies broadly to all health-related claims in many different product categories, not just supplements. The new guidance also aims to correct misunderstandings and urban myths 
that have circulated about FTC substantiation standards. According to Leslie Fair, the senior attorney with the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection, other revisions and expansions worthy of special mention in the updated guidance included the clear and conspicuous standard and qualified claims, the competent and reliable scientific evidence standard, and testing methodology. There's obviously much more, so it's probably time that I throw in this disclaimer. Don't just take my word for it. There's no substitution for reading the publication from cover to cover. Because of that, I'm going to leave the document link in this content's description. Additionally, I'm not a lawyer, so while I've played nice within the evolving expectations of the FTC for more than a decade, I don't interface directly with the regulatory agency on a regular basis. That's why I thought it would be best if I brought on my good friend Ivan Wasserman, who is a managing partner at Amin Talati Wasserman LLP, one of the nation's leading regulatory and intellectual property law firms. All right, so not to date myself, but um, the FTC released the uh, Dietary Supplements and Advertising Guide for the Industry when I was still in middle school. I wasn't even aware there was a thing called the supplement industry uh, at the time. Uh, I, I don't know if kids now, maybe because they have access to uh, the internet and information superhighway, that maybe they do know about these things, but I didn't at the time. Uh, but uh, because I'm a student of the game and quite certain that a lot has changed in the last 25 years. So when the uh, FTC did make that update last month, I figured it's probably a lot of new information, um, but is that the case? So what is, Ivan, I think from your perspective, maybe you know a few insights that you maybe pulled when you looked at the updated guidance um, or maybe even some different um, ambiguous points or, or something that you noticed when you were kind of reading through something that they created when the supplement industry was um, uh, in its infancy kind of at that time. And thanks, Josh. Yeah, no, um, you're making me feel really old because uh, in 1998, I was, I was well out of middle school. Uh, 98, I was a, a mid-level associate uh, at a, another large law firm. So I uh, got a few years on you, but yeah, sorry, certainly, sorry. certainly no more wisdom, that's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, no, a lot's happened since 98. Uh, and, um, and that's precisely why I think FTC uh, issued this new guidance document. Uh, you know, in terms of cases, in terms of how the law, not how the law has changed, how FDA's, FTC's approach towards marketing claims has has evolved uh, in cases, et cetera. You know, really, FTC said, you know, it's about time we did something new since this 98 guidance document. And I think it's really important for the for the audience to know what a guidance document is and what it what it isn't. So, you know, basically the FTC has a law and that's really the only thing it can use to go after a company. And the law is, is a little, it's a simple law, basically, in words. It says advertising or marketing claims can't be false or misleading. That's about it. So you can learn the law in, in that sentence. So, you know, where it gets complicated is, well, what is false? What is misleading? And so what the guidance document is, is FTC saying it's current thinking, basically, on what it thinks is false claims, what's a misleading claim, how it interprets claims, 
what type of studies are necessary to support claims to prove it isn't a false claim, uh, what kinds of disclosures are needed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really FTC telling the industry, telling the world what it thinks about different types of law. Now, you can't get in trouble for, quote, violating the guidance, right? Because you have to only violate the law. So if FTC is right in a guidance document as far as what the law is, or if FTC is wrong, you know, is another issue. And I know a lot in the industry thinks FTC is really overstretched, really what the law says in this guidance document with some examples that, that I can talk about. And the real fear is, I think, that a court or a plaintiff's lawyer in a class action, you know, is going to rely on these FTC statements as being the law, FTC's positions that it says are the law, um, when in theory, as I said, it's really not. And FTC is clear, this guidance document, other guidance document, that this is in binding law. So, you know, with, with that being said, there's lots of important stuff in here and lots of, um, of, of examples and things. So, so it not only goes through the whole uh, what FTC thinks, but it actually provides a lot of concrete examples, which is very useful for the agency because a lot of times you think of these things, you know, they're in the abstract, but by providing concrete examples, you really do get a lot of insights into how FTC views different claims, um, uh, which we'll talk a little bit about. Um, another important thing is why this document is different than the 1998 document is on its face, the 98 document was only about dietary supplements, right? Uh, this document, FTC says, is not just about dietary supplements, but it's about any products making any kind of health claims. So it expressly says it's not only about dietary supplements, but it's about foods, it's about drinks, it's about energy drinks, about protein products, workout products. It's even about apps, right? Apps that are making any kind of health claims, medical devices, homeopathic products. So FTC has expanded the scope of what it thinks that the, this guidance document uh, covers. Whether anything in here is a surprise is an interesting thing, because I think a lot of in here will become a, will be a surprise for those in the industry who don't follow FTC day after day after day, who aren't in meetings with the FTC like myself and other lawyers are. But a lot of what we see in this guidance document are things that the FTC has said its positions is are in meetings in court cases, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of it is really a great summary for those of you out there who haven't been following closely what FTC's positions are on all these various topics. Uh, and some of those positions, I should say, courts haven't necessarily agreed with. So FTC is sort of trying to say, well, this is our position. Even if a court might disagree, this is what our position is, and we want you to know. Um, so, you know, a few examples that I thought were interesting that I thought I would throw out there uh, for the audience is, for example, if you have the document, maybe you'll provide a link, Josh. Yeah. Uh, an example 18. Uh, example 18 was a little bit of a surprise. Not a surprise, but it's, again, consistent with what FTC was saying. And I'll read it. The FTC says, here's the example. The website for a sports drink touts a clinically tested ingredient for improving blood flow and increasing endurance. So the ad says this product has a clinically tested ingredient for improving blood flow and increasing endurance. Okay, let's say there is a study. Let's say that ingredient is in the product. Uh, then FTC says, so it's a true statement, right? That's true. It's in there and that's what the study says. The FTC says in this context, the phrase clinically tested ingredient implies not just that the ingredient was tested, but also that it, the test results prove a benefit for blood flow and endurance. <laughs> 
I'm not sure it should go without saying, but that gets to the concept of implied claims, right? Implied claims, you know, not only must a claim, express claim be true, but what you're saying by the claim, all the implications you also have to substantiation for. So the fact that there's a test, that may be well and good, but let's say the test didn't show that the product had that benefit. FTC saying, well, you're implying to consumers that it has that benefit. The next thing is more important, and this is what FTC has been saying, this is what other people have been saying, but I haven't seen them put it in writing in a guidance document before. They say, quote, the phrase also conveys a claim that the sports drink will provide those benefits, right? Makes sense, right? If you're a consumer and you see that this product has an ingredient that uh, is gonna do something, I'm gonna buy that sports drink or whatever product it is because it's gonna have that benefit. Uh, but then the FTC explains, because the drink also contains other ingredients, the marketer should consult with a qualified expert in the relevant field to determine whether the experts in that field would generally require a clinical test of the sports drink itself rather than the isolated ingredient to confirm the blood flow and endurance benefits. So right now, a lot of the industry, of course, in supplements and foods and drinks, et cetera, are relying on branded ingredient testing and FTC has never really objected to that as a general matter. The NAD has never really objected to that. But here they are saying, and they they I should say they've never objected to it as a concept, but they've always kind of said, you got to make sure that the other ingredients in the product aren't going to somehow negatively affect the efficacy of the one key ingredient you're talking about. And here they put it black and white in writing. So it's something to consider when making claims for your products. This was another kind of surprise. And again, in the sports drink category, so I thought it was pretty interesting for this. Um, when do you disclose qualifying information? So the FTC has always said, and it's true, you can get in trouble for something you say, right? If you don't have proof or if it's false or misleading, but you can also get in trouble for things that you don't say, things that you should have said in order to make a, pro a claim or an ad not deceptive. And this one is very interesting. Uh, example number 10, going back a little bit, it says an energy drink contains an ingredient that when consumed daily over an extended period of time can result in significant increase in blood pressure. Even absent, FTC says, any representation about the product's safety, the marketer should disclose this potential serious risk. Now that came out of right field. So the advertiser is not saying the product is safe. You know, and if it's not safe, therefore the safe claim would be deceptive, right? They're just saying if you don't say anything about it and you have information that an ingredient in your product can potential, potentially cause a risk, you've got to disclose that to people, almost like the prescription drug advertising, yeah. which again, doesn't make a lot of sense at all from a consumer perception standpoint. And the question becomes, well, how much of it do you have to take for it to become a risk, right? You have to drink 44 cans a day. And by leaving these sort of things unanswered, I think the FTC has created some more confusion, I think, than, than it created answers in, in, in some of these some of these examples. Um, so those are just a couple of examples. Uh, it's a great read. The FTC goes into a lot of detail about whether you need a randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial to prove a claim, which it, which in the original document, it sort of said, well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. And the industry since 98 has been sort of relying on that to say, well, it's a wishy-washy standard. And I think industry has kind of been throwing that language back in the FTC's face since 1998. And the FTC 
kind of went crazy. So in this document, they really went much more specific and sort of the exact types of substantiation you need. So it's I definitely recommend reading it. I definitely recommend everyone to triple check your claims, triple check your substantiation uh, to make sure you stay out of the FTC's crosshairs, because this may be an indication that they're going to step up enforcement. Yeah, no, I think I agree with you in that sense. I think anytime you know you see them spending obviously a substantial amount of time to communicate to the industry, odds are there's you know, hope to probably back that up with something. I think the examples you you kind of put together, I think, are ones that you know that I kept an eye on, and I was like, okay, there's this is a little bit of a interesting um, language. Um, and and to your point, like I'm not in those meetings all the time, so because of that, I'm interpreting them as well and trying to understand. Okay, you know, even that one you just mentioned, like okay, there's tons of information that's out there. How much, uh, you know, onus do you need to put that information? Like, what is it correct? What's not correct from, you know, general consensus of things? You know, is it, um, uh, you know, some artificial sweetener that you should be aware of? Or, you know, if it's caffeine, I think there's conflicting information from, you know, studies. So which do you side with? You know, should I not say anything because there's actually conflicting information? Should I side on the point where I have to say something because the majority of it seems to be in that direction. I don't know, it creates a lot of these like, you know, what do you do type of situations, which I think in your world, this is this is what you have to decode on, on a day-to-day -day yeah. basis. Yeah, it's, it, there's so much of this is not black and white. It's uh, it's really interesting. I mean, when, when I think about it, you know, you've got the pharmaceutical industry with their billions and billions of dollars of war chest you know, of investment to do research, right? And at the end of the day, they go through this billion dollar uh, application and the FTC, I'm sorry, the FDA says, you can say this about your product. These are your warnings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You sort of get a blueprint. Yeah. Whereas the supplement industry and the food industry, you're on your own, right? Yeah. Until you, you know, hopefully you're doing your homework. Hopefully you're doing the best you can. Hopefully you've got the right scientists advising you. You've got the right legal regulatory people advising you. But at the end of the day, you're always subject to Monday morning quarterbacking because you don't have an agency ahead of time telling you this is OK to say this is a this is the type of warnings you might need for your product. Yeah, and I obviously don't want to speak for you, but I feel like both with the FDA and the FTC kind of. I would say paying more attention to you know, supplements and the adjacent kind of categories, like you said, functional beverages, functional foods, all these types of things. All of that attention um, is going to be something that any brand needs to button up everything on the back end. You know, I'm sure everybody's doing the best they can, but if for whatever reason, maybe you are a little bit concerned about having, you know, a certain claim or a certain ingredient or whatever those things are, you should take all this extra attention in mind to say like, you know, it's probably time if there's never a, a better time to actually just button all that stuff up because um, as this industry has grown and, and more people are kind of taking supplements and, and it's just become a part of normal behavior, these regulatory agencies have to make sure that there's a safeguard in place. And, and if we um, think that they're doing a good job, bad job, doesn't matter. The, the attention is there regardless. And I think it's important for any brand to say, are we okay? Dot our I's, we'll cross our T's. Have we done those things? Because if not, odds are there's it's probably going to be a, 
a higher chance of, of something happening now that the attention's on the industry than, you know, these last handful of years when maybe there wasn't much attention being put or at least um, outward attention being put um, from the regulatory agencies. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think there has been a little bit of a lull from the FTC. I mean, they've historically gone after, you know, disease claims. Uh, they've got supplements. They've gone after weight loss has been sort of enemy number one. Yeah. But but I do think that by expanding the uh, the express scope of this guidance document, it is sort of a signal that, hey, hey guys, we're not just going to be going after weight loss supplements. Uh, we're going to be expanding our our reach. Um, and, you know, it used to be also that television, right, was the number one place that the FTC took action. It was infomercials. It was big TV campaigns uh, because that's where most potential for mass consumer deception was. But uh, that's all shifted to the to the Internet. And uh, FTC is, is similarly shifting its focus to blogs, to fake review sites to uh, these places which uh, they see have, have this big, you know, much bigger potential to deceive a lot more consumers. So, you know, no, no piece of no piece of marketing, whether it's a whether it's a Facebook post to, to date myself again, Josh, I guess, TikTok <laughs> or uh, MySpace or uh, or, uh, you know, anything is too small for both the FDA and the FTC these days. Yeah, I think that's an important point to to bring up. I think because the sheer volume of um, noise out in the space might give you a false hope that these organizations or anybody would not be able to kind of pick through the the um, haystack to find the needle. But with all of the technology nowadays and and being able to kind of have all that stuff dictated and be there out there, they can find everything. And I think you'd be surprised at how much they probably are able to find if they actually want to find it. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those things where don't feel like just because it's so noisy that you could be able to slide through. Um, because when the time comes, if they need to pull something even from, who knows, a decade ago or whatever, they can do that um, quite easily if they want to. Um, it, again, it comes down to, do they want to? Um, but it's one of those things where I think, I know I've talked to several people where they get a little bit of a false sense of security because you know, it's not so gate kept or like just, you know, you know, there's a certain circulation of, of um, magazines or certain things here and you only have to follow so much messaging where now it's like, like you said, if it's TikTok or, or Instagram or Facebook or just anywhere, you have, you know, who knows how many millions of um, different pieces of content that are put out there on a minute to minute basis. And it's like, how could somebody find all of that and, and search through it? They can if they want to. <laughs> a, a great real world example of that. Uh, so, you know, in the height of the COVID pandemic, the FTC and the FDA were very active in finding fraudulent COVID claims and sent out dozens and dozens and dozens of, of warning letters and things. And in one particular case uh, involving an MLM, so an MLM, you know, multi-level mark, direct marketing, not only are they their own website, but they could potentially have hundreds of thousands of, of their consultants worldwide making claims. Um, and in one case that I'm aware of, they found on a YouTube video that a consultant, independent consultant had posted on YouTube, a COVID claim like 18 minutes into a half hour video. Mm. And they found it. Of the 
thousands of posts out there by uh, by consultants. So they're they're using technology too when they want to find claims to find claims. And, and to your point on haystacks, yeah, it's a big big bale of hay out there. <laughs> but uh, but you know, again, when they when you hear from the FDA or the FTC, you know, why me? Look at all these other straws out there of hay to continue the analogy. Uh, it's no defense. Well, I hope they, that they've heard that a thousand times before. Yeah, as I say, hopefully this particular piece of content is um, is a, a nice shiny piece of hay um, within the there big haystack, and everybody will enjoy it. But uh, I mean, I appreciate all the insights and everything that you shared with me. I think it's going to be definitely uh, a lot of value that you kind of put out there, and I think it's it's a great topic that I think a lot, like you said, it's reading that people need to be taking the time to do if they're anywhere around the health and wellness space or or just making claims. That's very true. Thank you. Thank you for this talk. But before before I go, I have to do something that I really wanted to do for many, many years now. Boom. I think I think I think you need to start showing up at court. You know, if I do this right now, they'll be like, hey, you, you know, Josh, you must be a Josh fan. Yeah, yeah yes, exactly. I am. Yeah. Yes, I am. <laughs> So is health products compliance guidance perfect? I think holding any governmental agency to a standard of perfection is asinine. But maybe with more specific and current examples, the revised guidance document will hopefully be a tremendous tool for the supplement industry to build marketing campaigns and meet FTC's current expectations. I just want to kind of end on some quick final thoughts. Whether it was this revised FTC guidance document, uh, state legislators attacking supplements, senators calling for the supplement industry reform, or several questionable FDA moves against the supplement industry, it's easy to see that the government is paying more attention to the supplement industry. This increased attention can only mean major changes are likely ahead. So, buckle up supplement industry, things could get a bit rocky here in 2023. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have any comments or questions about anything I discussed during it, open the podcast episode notes and click on any of my social media account links to reach out to me directly.